Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to Cast and Crank Podcast. Today we have Brandon Palnick. Um, this is a really good one. It was my third or fourth phone interview I've done where I've actually had people call on and, and do it over the phone. But uh, we have it all figured out now and it, it works really good the way I have it all set up. So uh, I'm stoked on it. And he answered everyone's Q&A. Our most, if he didn't say it already in the podcast or I didn't ask the question myself, you know, he, he answered it. He uh, talks a lot about swim baits as well. He's a big swim bait fisherman too as well. So thanks again, Brandon, for coming on and dropping all kinds of knowledge bombs on us. And uh, great weekend. We did the me and my buddy Anthony at SBS first uh, tournament on my own without a ringer. <laughs> uh, we didn't, uh, we blanked, but it was a lot of fun. We caught a lot of fish. My buddy Anthony's super green, so he caught a lot of his, uh, a lot of fish in his first body. So it was a fun time. Great uh, tournament. Great job, Jerry, Aaron, SBS. Congrats, Josh and um, Shannon. Great job. And we have a little ad from my boy, Fred Clinshaw. He, uh, I've talked about him before. He's as a guided service out of Casitas, Castaic, and um, Kachuma now, I think. So here's a little piece from Fred. Um Fred Clinshaw Fishing, located in Southern California, provides premier guide bass fishing trips. Beginners to advanced professionals can book a half-day, full-day, or a custom trip aboard one of the two fully-rigged high-performance bass boats. Learn techniques used by the top professionals to locate fish and become more successful in catching them. Fred Clinshaw Fishing is ready 365 days a year. All you need is a fishing license, and he'll supply you with the top-of-the-line gear, the latest tackle, and everything else you need for a day on the water. Bring a friend, the family, or a group. Fred guides trips at Lake Casitas, Castaic, and now offers trips at Lake Kachuma, three of Southern California's world-famous bass fisheries. Call or text Fred at 805-630-0160. Follow him on Instagram, The Hammer of Fury. Check out his website, Fred uh, FredClinshawFishing.com. Uh, first-time clients mention Cast and Crank when booking and receive a discounted price on either a full-day, half-day trip. If I'm going to re- recommend anyone, uh, I'm going to recommend Fred. I've actually been on his trips, and they're amazing, and we have a blast. And he's a fun guy, and like I said before, he won't make you feel fucking stupid. Uh, you know, if, if you have a question, you know, he d- doesn't uh, make you feel dumb. So that's one one thing that I like is I'm I'm stupid, so I ask a lot of dumb questions, 
And <laughs> he made me feel comfortable when we were fishing. So thanks again, Fred. And uh, we had a great day when me and Joe from Performance went out. So uh, other than that, we have next week will be Fred's episode on, on Monday. And then it's going to be the Punk Rock Roundtable. And I think after that, I, I think it's uh, Fish Everything. Yeah, that'll end out the, the month. And then we have uh, good ones. I'll be going up north. I think we'll be doing Collins with Aaron Britt, Paul Bailey, uh, Jeremy from Black Dog. That'll be a great one. And the Delta Roundtable with Caesar, Danny. I think Danny's dad, Bobby D. Bates, is going to come on. And Caesar bringing, I think, someone else with them. That's a really good fisherman from up there. So it'll be a great one. And please give us five stars on iTunes and a positive review. Also, I'll get back on the YouTube. I've been slammed with a... The whole swim bit underground month really killed me putting all those YouTube out episodes out on time. So I'm going to try to get back on it, doing all the um, YouTube stuff. And remember, if you guys want to uh, win uh, some of the DRT Working Class Zero collabs, Mike Gilbert, uh, Working Class Zero, uh, is a sponsor this month for Patreon. Thanks again, Mike. And uh, you can uh, look at the link in the bio, Patreon, and look up Cast and Crank. You'll have a chance at winning three different baits. I think it's the... Uh, I got a little Clash 9, uh, the Tiny Clash, and I think it's the big one, the Ghost. So uh, you guys will have a chance to win one of those. So please, uh, if you can, donate on the Patreon. Check out the iTunes. Subscribe on YouTube. And we'll be having call-ins, so I'm going to make sure that these ones set up. We'll have an actual call-in line. Like I said, I'm going to try to put it so where it's going to be like 10 people on hold for like an hour before we do it. And then you guys to come in, we'll bring you in uh and you can ask a question. So thanks again for listening, guys. And that's about it. All right. See you guys. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? There you go. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> that was a little a little uh, muffled at the, the beginning. Yeah, I was trying to get it to connect to my headphones. Oh, yeah, this is a new thing for me too. I don't. I have this is. A, I think you're like probably like the fifth phone call I've done. I yeah. usually do it all in person, but can't turn down the the Bassmaster. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. I was good. That's why I was wondering if we're doing video or audio or. Yeah, I, I mean it. I liked. I started with audio the first probably hundred, hundred and five episodes, hundred episodes. Yeah. And then uh, I started right before COVID. I was doing a lot, a lot of live, in person ones. And then COVID hit, and I said I got to do calling. So I, I think the first one I yeah. did was Bill Semental. So okay. I, yeah, it was. I mean, and I'm like, it it makes sense. I can't I can't get to Idaho, dude. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I I've, I've drove to Arizona. I'm going up north to do like Paul Bailey and some of the uh, the swim bait guys up there. But it's. I, I mean, I my family lives in um, uh, Twin Falls. I don't know how far that is from you. Okay, yeah, I'm still like eight hours north of Twin Falls. Yeah, that's that's a mission and a half, dude. Uh-huh. But um, well, thanks for coming on the podcast, dude. I appreciate it. Um, no problem. Yeah, and uh, I think you're the most established tournament fisherman on this podcast ever. Heck yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I got a lot of questions for you. Um, I guess Good. the first one I want to talk about is your youtube channel i've been watching that lately how much work goes into that thing dude oh man it is um it's a love-hate relationship (laughs) for (laughs) lots of lots and lots of reasons uh i absolutely love it 
because I I think it gets to show a different perspective than what most people see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that the majority of the YouTube demographic is not necessarily your hardcore tournament guys. Now it's that line is blending and meshing more and more every year, but there's definitely a big difference between like the hardcore YouTube crowd and the hardcore tournament crowd. Um, and you're starting to see that mix, but it's because you've got tournament guys doing YouTube channels and you've got some YouTube guys that are getting into tournaments. And so you start to have that crossover. Uh, it takes a, just a lot of work logistically. It takes a lot of money to do it. Yeah. Um, and then I think like one of our biggest hiccups or like one of the things that faults us the most is the level of quality that we try to keep in them. And to do that, you can't crank them out as quickly as YouTube's algorithm would like you to. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've had to kind of take a step back and look at it and say, okay, what's, what's the overall goal here? And, you know, is it just gaining more subscribers or is it actually telling the story that we want to tell it and how it unfolds and making it look good? And that's, Ultimately, that's what it came down to. Right? I was not not doing it necessarily for the money or for the subscribers or the likes or comments or any of that. It was just to be able to inspire people and let them see what it actually looks like out there on the water. Do you feel like that's almost like your attitude? Like you want to do the best you can. You want to be the best in the best series you can, whatever. So like you want to put out the best product you can. So if you're going to put out video, you want it to be the best mm-hmm. quality as possible, right? A hundred percent. What I learned about myself early on is that I am not a good salesman. <laughs> I'm not a good, <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase that. I'm not a good used car salesman. Like I can't look somebody in the eyes and and just tell them what they want to hear. Um, and that authenticity is very important for me. And so when I put something out, if I, if in my heart, I feel like that's the best that we can do, then I don't feel like I'm ever selling anybody to something Right? I'm just informing them of what I believe in the products I use or whatever it may be. Um, and then I, I never have to feel like I'm selling something because it's just, it's a weird, awkward feeling for me. Yeah. Did you try to bring the production down at all? I'd like during uh, when you started the video, because you have a lot of subscribers, right? On YouTube. I mean, it, it's okay. We just broke 45,000. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great. And so I, I feel good about it. Um, I think we could be a lot higher if we push more videos. Like I can see if we're posting fairly consistently, mm-hmm. uh, like this fall we had, you know, a lot of tournaments back to back to back. And as we were posting more frequently, that snowball was rolling at a faster speed and getting bigger. Yeah. And, uh, but staying on top of that is hard because the YouTube gig is not my full-time thing. 
mm-hmm. you know, the tournament side of it and the sponsorships and that the business side of it on that end is the full-time thing and that funds the YouTube. Uh, and so for me, uh, you know, my, he's one of my best friends. Kyle is the one that's been filming for me. And we've had a lot of talks about that as like, you know, do we just try to crank them out quicker and we'll have hour long conversations about it. And it always circles back to that's not who we are. And so we're not, we're not going to do it as, as far as not on the tournament series. Now, if it's like other videos, yeah. you know, kind of just one-off stuff and things like that, um, then we're not as worried about it. But that, as far as like BMP fishing, the series, I want that to be similar to something that people would watch as a series on Netflix or Hulu yeah. or something. That's a, that's, and I think what you're doing too is, is a uh, great because one debate I've had on my podcast with people, I've had it with lots of people was who, what do you consider a professional fisherman angler? And to me, I consider the best person at what they do. So to me, yeah. you're a professional. Now, some people would consider a professional fisherman, a guide or someone that makes money off of, YouTube, like Guggen Squad or nothing. I'm not hating anyone, mm-hmm. but they, they do it for a living. They make a lot of money. And with that, you get um, companies probably wanting to, per, to to put money into people and take it out of the tournament anglers' hands almost because you have YouTube fishermen that are kind of like have these channels with millions, you know, followers, stuff yeah. like that. So it's cool that you're trying to go, hey, I got to get with the times. I got to make sure I'm I'm putting out the best I can to keep up with these guys and put this production out, um, you know. And and you pretty much have a full time mm-hmm. film guy with you, right? I mean, your buddy is he yeah. with you a lot yeah, of the time? Do. I mean, yeah, he. We actually went to high school together. Uh, oh, he that's graduated. Awesome. Uh, graduated a couple years younger than me, actually, with my sister. And it's funny, like we didn't hang out a lot in high school. We had kind of the same group of friends. Some, and you know, we played some sports together. But we've actually became better friends outside of high school. And then, uh, like, he didn't know anything about tournament fishing. And I just threw him in a bass boat with a camera the first time that he filmed a couple <laughs> years ago. Uh, and he crushed it. And so, and, you know, as he learned more about it, he got into fishing. Now he's addicted to fishing, uh, you know, and it, it just makes it so easy because he stays in our RV with us and, uh, him and Tiff get along great. And, That's great. You know, it's a, it's definitely a team slash family atmosphere, and and I think a lot of people can see that throughout the videos, right? Like he's not just behind the camera. Sometimes he'll be in front of the camera, and uh, you know we, we keep it lighthearted and enjoyable, and you know that. I mean, that conversation of who's considered a professional comes up all the time. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like if a professional angler is really just at the top level, right? Yeah. The elite series, like like the basketball to me, like I compared it to like Michael Jordan or someone that's a professional basketball player. I mean, you get a guy that can do these crazy dunks. He's still not a pro, but he's making, he could be making as much as them. But like you're saying is, is I, I agree elite series, something like that. Yeah, like for me, I wouldn't 
consider the Globetrotters professional basketball <laughs> yeah, players. Yeah. They're professional entertainers yes. that are really good at basketball. Yes. Um, you know, and it's the same thing with YouTube. Like, they're not necessarily professional anglers. They may make a living off of, you know, fishing content, but it's not a professional angler. But when it, when you circle it back around from a company standpoint and it, it becomes marketing dollars and impressions and eyeballs, uh, you know, those big numbers that some of those groups have catch the eyeballs of those companies because they can move products. Uh, but then you also have, it, it doesn't work for every company Mm-mm. because you also have to be wise enough to look at that demographic and understand like, does that network fit what that company is trying to sell? That's almost like picking the correct sponsor for you, right? Like 100%. you can't, you can't, have you ever had someone offer you, have you ever sold your soul for money or thought about it and been like, damn. That's a lot of money, but you just can't back it. You know, like you're like, I just can't do it. You ever have been on the line with a sponsor like that? I've done some deals where I, that didn't turn out like I thought they were going to. Uh Um, but I've had way more deals that, uh, that I've just walked away from, you know, and some pretty big paying deals, uh, that were not the right fit for me. And I just walk away from the money. Yeah. It's not, to me, it's not worth it. You sell yourself once you sell yourself forever. And I'm just not like, I'm in it for the long game and I don't, there's just not, there's not enough upside. Like I'm not going to take the money to my grave. So, well, I feel like keep your money, even you like, you know, switching back from the, uh, elite, you know, back and forth. That's, mm-hmm. that was a big deal. I mean, that was like, were you almost like, so when you did that, you know, I, I read a little article about it on the, on the magazine mm-hmm. and, um, that feeling must be pretty crazy to like, okay, I, this is, you almost got to feel like it's a business a little bit too. So maybe like in your mind, you had like a business minded decision that just, you know, your heart didn't feel that way kind of thing. Yeah, it was, that was a, very like soul searching. I, I mean, you'd say a couple of years, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, because you're, it was really weird. I, like there was part of me that I could feel that was saying, don't leave, don't go do that. And then like, that was like my heart, right. And my brain saying, how could you not go? Like everyone else says they're going and like, how could you get it wrong, you know, and want to say, and, um, you know, like that was kind of one of those things where it didn't evolve into what I thought it was going to and Mm -hmm. kind of started to go a different direction. And the more it did that, the more my heart pulled me back to where I originally was. Did you pull me back to the elite? Yeah. And so in that moment or like through that process, things started to feel more like a job. I didn't have the same passion. I still enjoyed it. Right? Like I still had a blast and there was a lot of things that I learned from it and a lot of things that I loved about it. And I would, 
if I could go back, I would not do it any differently because I did learn so much about myself and the whole process of it. Uh, so I, I don't regret any of it. Uh, but I, I think what I realized the most is that in that process, I had to do it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was for the passion. And I had to have that like burning desire to compete and win and, you know, to make that next cast. And I felt that flipping and it scared me. And I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> I'm way too young and I'm not going to be one of those guys that gets burnt out. And, and I just, I had to make a decision that, you know, eventually I finally realized what was happening internally with me of this like tug of war of back and forth of what the right call was. Uh, and at the end of the day, I just had to do what I felt like made me the most happy. Did you not, did you feel like it turned into more of a job due to the format? Do you know what I'm saying? Like when you went over uh, there, or are you were either way you're happy so, with either format? Somewhat. I, there's pros and cons to both formats. Yeah. Uh, it's the easiest way to sell. I mean, they're just, they're not the same. And so they're really hard to compare to each other. And, uh, you know, like, there's definitely things I like about it. For me, I, um, uh, like, the lack of fan interaction was tough for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there wasn't the buildup, right? So they're like, there were really cool moments in it, but you didn't have those winning moments, right? Like to me, one of the most important moments in bass fishing uh, is when a guy wins and his weight is announced on stage. And because there's all of this suspense and even if a guy blows it away on the last day, <laughs> it's still not official until that moment. And so an entire week's worth or, you know, even more than a week's worth, a year, several years, a guy's lifetime to that moment of winning one of those events, something you've dreamt of as since you were a kid. And it, a lot of those dreams, come about because you've seen that moment, right? You've watched that moment on TV, you've watched it online. Uh, all of these emotions that a guy has. And I just felt like a lot of that emotion was pulled out of it. Now it was intense. It was super competitive mm-hmm. because you were, you know, you were always on the time clock. You knew what everybody had. You, you really couldn't make a wrong decision because it was going to cost you too hard to come back from. Um, But at the, at the end of the day, it was like, I was going out there getting the job done and I would be pumped when I did well, but it was like, I was just going out there and I was doing my job because I'm competitive and I don't want to lose. (laughs) Yeah. Did you, I didn't have the same passion for it. Did you play high school sports? I did. I wrestled all the way from eight all the way into college. So do you think that plays uh, a factor in like you want to be the center stage? Cause like wrestling, you, you know, that's a big deal when you win, you got a lot of people watching you. So you're like used to that, that excitement, right? Uh, for me, it's kind of 
just to like bring it to simple <laughs> terms, uh-huh. it's like uh, the saying, does a tree make a sound if it falls <laughs> in the woods and nobody's around? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, it's kind of that same thing for me, right? It's like the things that we experience in life are amplified by who we experience them with. Yeah. And so when you win an event and there's nobody around, it's really cool, but you don't have that energy, right? Like we're just, we're social creatures by nature. It's what human beings are. And so I feed off of that energy. Like there's some guys that don't like people being out there on the water, watching them fish. Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> I love having people around watching yeah. as long as they're respectful, right? And they're not running over everything and fishing everything behind you and stuff. But like just having good spectators and people out there just fuels that fire and that energy for me. And it's the same on stage. Uh, and it, it just, it amplifies those moments. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's why I wanted to start fishing for a living. I mean, and that's why what keeps me going is those, those little moments and those feelings, because the only way to experience that is for it to happen again. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes complete sense. Since you did come from like a wrestling background, you might understand this question a little. Um, since you have two different platforms, how do you know who the best is? You know what I'm saying? When you're fishing, if if you're fishing, are you fishing to beat your personal best or to be the best? You know what I'm saying? And if you are the best in the elite, who's to say that someone in, and um, you know, the bass tour is not better. Oh, that's a good question. That, honestly, the only thing you can do in fishing is be better than you were yesterday. Mm-hmm. And as long as you focus on that, you'll continually progress forward. And like the thing with fishing is that there's so many variables uh, and it's ever changing that you can be the best one week (laughs) and then you're literally the very next week. You can win on Sunday and on Monday morning when you wake up, you are just as good as the guy you launch next to. Yeah. Yeah. And no better. And so to say that you are better than another guy is you just can't, you know, some guys may be more knowledgeable at certain techniques, certain bodies of water or you know, certain types of bodies of water, but there's really not a way to say like that guy's the best. Now you can look at guys like Kevin Van Dam, mm-hmm. who over time has proven again and again, that he is one of, if not the best professional anglers that we've ever had. Yeah. Uh, you know, just because track record, right? the numbers don't, yeah, yeah the numbers don't <laughs> lie. And over time, right. Like he's not lucky that many times. He's that good. I mean, you don't, you, he has taken all of the luck out of it. I mean, he has proved himself, um, you know, and same with guys like Rick Clunn. Mm-hmm. Right. Clun was winning classics before I was alive and has continued to win elite series events while I've been a professional angler while I've fished on the elite series. And so, you know, there's just some guys that will do that. And 
I just you can't really say like that one is yeah like there's the not exactly no that's a great answer man 100 percent um when so at the same time you you know say you're doing really good and, and you want to become a professional angler um what do you think it really takes like because you see a lot of a lot of guys try to do it and i'm sure it's very expensive so how do you how do you go about like even thinking about doing that? Maybe a younger guy, maybe giving him a little bit of advice and going, "Hey, you know, you got to have these ducks in a row first before you even think about it." You know what I'm saying? I mean, to I'll just start with the money side of it. Mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer in the fact that if if it's meant to be and you're willing to put in the work that the money side of it will take care of itself because I, myself included, a lot of the guys I know that make a living at it now didn't have a bunch of money when they started, didn't come from a bunch of money. Which is a great thing to hear. Uh, I mean, because that's kind of what I wanted to say too, is like, do you need to have a lot of money to do this? Like you need to come from money or can you just be a really good angler and actually do it? You know, if you're good enough and you're willing to put in the work and make the right sacrifices, you can make it without the money. Uh-huh. It will take care of itself. Um, a, a guy that is a great example of that it is Matt Robertson. Uh-huh. Um, so he doesn't come from a bunch of money. Uh, he's just like a good old boy from the country. <laughs> But he's a phenomenal fisherman. And a uh, funny story about that, me and Matt Robertson, if some of the people don't know who Matt is, Matt, won, he's qualified for the Classic in the weekend series um, last year, two years, two years ago, mm-hmm. I believe. And then he won an Open this year right after he finished second the week before and qualified for the Elite Series this year. Wow. Uh, so if people don't know who he is, but... The funny thing is me and Matt randomly. So I was 18 kid from Idaho. I don't remember exactly how old Matt was, but we were roommates at a FLW Federation. So the TBS national championship in 2008. Oh, wow. We had both qualified for that event. And like, that's just an example of this guys that are, consistently good and kind of work their way toward the top. There's a lot of guys that are good enough to do it that aren't willing to sacrifice the comfort of like a good job, a steady job, a nice house, like a nice truck, um, relationships. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to sacrifice. And so with the influx of high school and college kids and everything that we have now, the reality of it is, 90% 90% of them will not make it to the top level. Uh, but there will be a group of them that physically and mentally can't live without it that will make it happen. And then you just have to have some sort of, you have to have a natural talent. Like there has to be that ability there, but you can't make it just on that. It's too, it's too demanding it's too time consuming to make it just on talent you can qualify just on talent 
but you won't sustain just on talent. Mm-hmm. That's a great answer. Um, did you ever get to the point like where you're like, um, man, like say like a horrible tournament, like where you had it all in the bag and you and you just blew it and uh, maybe turned you off? Uh, what do you mean turned me off? So maybe like a, something that like really maybe like make you want to quit ever. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't know. I don't think I ever, I never had moments that I was like, I'm not chasing this. So when I was eight years old, I decided I wanted to fish for a living. And <laughs> I knew there was something inside of me that wanted to do it so badly that pretty much all of my life decisions were made off of that why of like how if I do this or if I do that how is it going to affect me making it fishing down the road and you know, my entire life was geared that way um, and I I just I always constantly made decisions there were several times uh, that like I didn't have enough money and I didn't know where to go remember one time I was driving back home and I had to fuel up for fuel and literally did not have any money in my bank account. Zero, zero dollars in my bank account and had, and I'm just sitting at the gas station and had to sleep at the gas station and wait until a check showed up at my house so that my mom could go deposit it in the bank so that I could drive. And, uh, and I just slept in the back of my truck on the side of the road until the bank opened up the next day. And so, but like, even in those moments, it was like, I, it was like, I just knew that that was part of it. And I think all of those moments make me appreciate it so much more now. And it's a reality check as well. Right. I mean, yeah. Some people think it's all glamour and, you know, uh, cameras and stuff. And it's like, no, you're grinding in a truck, you know, sleeping, mm-hmm. eating, eating AM, PM hamburgers and shit like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it took. <laughs> I, I used to buy, I would go to McDonald's. This is so nasty. I would go to McDonald's and I would buy like 10 or 15 $1 cheeseburgers. And then I would just throw ice in the boat cooler and I would just throw them on ice. And that's what I lived off of for like four or five days. I'd just pull one out what? and just eat it. Like breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever. Just I kept them cold <laughs> on ice and i just pull them out and, and eat them. And I used to eat, gosh, I used to make uh, tomato soup out of hot water and ketchup packets. Oh, my God. That's disgusting. <laughs> now, what, what happens if you had to shit? You ever crap your pants on a boat? No, no. Thankfully, I've been blessed with like pretty solid bowel, and I'm able to, I'm able to sustain. Because I couldn't imagine, like, man, you're fishing, dude, and you're out there eating all those hamburgers. Those would go right through me, dude. <laughs> no, I think it, I think they probably blocked me up more than anything. Oh man, um, we have a big swim bait following the pot. I, I, I yeah. guess a big for what we have the listenership. And uh, 
Mike Gilbert kind of pushed me your way and said, you're, you're, you're pretty interested in that. And you put some work in with the swim bait. When did you pick that yeah. up? And when was that, you know, I, it seems like you have a love for it. When did you pick up the swim bait and kind of start fiddling with different baits? <laughs> I joke with people all the time and tell them I make a living fishing tournaments and my hobby is throwing swim bait. <laughs> so it's, and for everybody that's done it knows like how addicting that is because this just, the things that you see with a big bait, you don't see with anything else. Yeah. That, like I've had fish literally run their head right into the trolling motor. <laughs> Cause you, you've, you've got them in that trance, right? Like they don't, it's like the rest of the world doesn't exist and they're tracking that bait and they're tracking it and, you know, conditions suck and they're not going to eat it and they just follow it. But they're so tuned in, they run into the trolling motor. That kind of stuff is like, that's what got me hooked. And I think I started when I was like 14, maybe. Wow. So like almost 20 years ago, 18, 19 years ago. Okay. Um, I started messing around and because I'm fairly close to California, like I started, I got that influx of things, um, you know, and you'd hear things through the grapevine. And then a lot of the people probably, no, like basement that was around. Basement mm-hmm. uh, started from guys that were in the club that I fished in. Oh no way! And yeah, and so early, early on, like they they would give me like you know little prototype deals or things that they were working on, uh, and 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 so I was always. Like that's kind of where I first got fascinated by it. And then just as, as the entire swim bait thing kind of evolved, like we started doing more and more of it and started getting into the glide baits and the wake baits and, you know, triple traps and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, the, the biggest bass I've ever caught, uh, I caught on the eight inch HUD. Oh, nice. Like, I mean, so how, how big was that bass? Twelve four. Oh, nice. Yo, know, it was uh, it was pretty awesome. I <laughs> thought it was a thirteen. It was in Texas. I thought it was a chair lunker. Uh, it's actually it's up on my YouTube channel, Cast to Catch. Yeah, it's it's pretty dang. It's just so addicting. I mean, there's nothing like that. And uh, you know, like you mentioned, Mike Gilbert. He's he's always one of those guys that. I've been fascinated watching because he has a different approach to it. Uh, and I, I think the one thing that I was always drawn to also in the swim bait world is that it, in the big bait scheme of things, there's probably the biggest mesh of culture and fishing versus anything else. Mm-hmm where you and i think a lot of that comes because it's a lot of the western influence to it uh but you it's funny like if if there's a kid that loves skateboarding or snowboarding or whatever it may be bmx something Mm -hmm. like some extreme sport and then they get into fishing they fall in love with big bait (laughs) (laughs) they can care less about really like fishing tournaments and stuff a lot right like they just want that one big one Uh, yeah that's like that's i guess it's an extreme extreme fishing right 
would be, I guess, big, yeah. big extreme sports is like the swim bait fishing. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've always been fascinated by that mesh of different cultures kind of rather because I, I grew up looking at fishing and everybody when they're like, Oh, what do you want to do for a living? And you say, I want to be a professional bass fisherman. They're like, oh, well, isn't, don't you just like sit on a dock with a bobber and like wait for something to come by? And that drove me nuts. And and I always saw like that swim bait world of, you know, progressing that and meshing that. I remember watching like Big Bait Posse mm-hmm. with Sean Bailey and those guys. And when that came out, I was like, this, this is what bass fishing should look like. I was like, this is the coolest stuff ever, right? It was like younger music, like guys driving these fast boats, like <laughs> just all these badass shots of giants eating swim baits. I'm like, yep. Yeah, no, I, and, uh, I agree 100%. Um, so you did a little research and, and kind of got in on your own swim bait as well, correct? The I storm? did. So just yeah. over, yes. Um, I had worked with Storm pretty much since the time that uh, that I qualified for the Elite Series. After my first classic, they contacted me, uh, you know, and I got in with that group. And as things progressed, they're like, what do you think about working on making a big bait? I was like, yes, please. <laughs> um, and, and because really there were a lot of different baits that I liked, but I struggled finding one that could lend itself to all the things I wanted it to be able to do in more of a tournament situation. Um, so the Arashi glide is really, it's geared towards tournament fishing, not to say that it doesn't catch giants, but when you have a seven and a half inch bait, I consider that more into the, tournament side of things mm-hmm. now if you're a tournament guy you look at that and you're like that is a giant bait <laughs> no way a bass is going to bite that but in the in the big bait world that's not that big and uh, yeah i think the biggest one i've caught on it so far is nine and a half i know several guys that have caught tens and elevens on it uh, wow you know but you start talking 13 you know 14, 15, 16 pound fish. One, there's not as many of those anymore, but yeah, there's yeah. Just, it's like you just, the bigger you go, the more you up your odds of that one bite, even though you may go days without it. And so, you know, I, I took, I'm not afraid to say like, I took inspiration from a lot of my favorite bait and just tried to mold them into one. And I learned a lot in the process of doing that because when I started writing a list down of things I wanted it to do and then when we started actually working on building that it came down to the fact that the majority of those things right like if you want a really wide glide but then you also want to be able to twitch that bait in and around cover well those two things essentially work against each other they're like polar opposites Mm -hmm. when you talk about designing the bait and it took a long time of, you know, body shapes and weighting and things to get one where I felt like it's not going to be the 
it might not be the best at a wide glide. It may not be the best at twitching, but it is the best at doing all of those things. And it does all of those things phenomenally where I feel like I can catch fish on it anywhere across the country. Uh, you know, so there was a lot of like negotiator and depth 250 and, you know, even some of like those sneaky Pete that like yeah. different stuff, like even like a mother, because a mother, even though it's made by Roman made, it doesn't fish the same as a negotiator. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of pulled all of these little intricate things that I liked about all these different baits. Uh, you know, even some like handmade ones that I've seen over the years of guys that don't even sell them and, and try to take all those things I loved and put them into one. So this would be a question for you since you fished all those baits. Do you feel like since it's a plastic injection mold that it does swim a little different or even float a little different than like the, the resin ones that you get from people, you know, like just an overall, um, like your overall perspective yeah. on it, you know, like what I'm saying, because a lot of people say, you know, there it just just doesn't work the same with injection mold as it does a resin mold because of the weight, whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be some differences, no doubt. Uh-huh. Um, it's no different than if you take like you can take the exact same crankbait mold and build it out of a different plastic or build it out of balsa, uh-huh. and it's going to react different. Um, because that it's because it's a it's a different material that you're introducing to the water that's going to have different properties. Okay. Um, so for me, I would say we've done a really good job of like meshing those things. Uh, right, like a wood base not going to be the same. Now, what I'll say is like hands down, I think it's the best mass produced one. There you go. That's what I was going to get at there. too. Um, because the reality of it is, is when you have a guy that's spending 12 hours on one bait and he's hand tuning everyone and moving the weight inside, and getting it to perfectly suspend and all that, it's impossible. You can't do that <laughs> for like for a big company can't do that, right? Because they have to sell thousands and thousands, not a hundred of them. Yeah. And you just, you can't do that. Um, and especially you can't do that at a 35 to $38 price point. <laughs> no, not at all. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and so they're just, it's hard to compare those things. Uh, and that's why I try to explain to people, like I, I took all of these things that I loved about these bays and things that I was passionate about and tried to, blend them the best we could into what I would consider the best all around like tournament or starter glad bait. Now that doesn't mean a guy that's super hardcore can't go out there and throw it and have a blast. Yeah. Big ones. Cause it, it does different things, right? Like you can burn it and it's not going to blow out on you. You can twitch it around cover and slide it underneath docks if you want. Uh, you know, and that's, I wanted it to be easy to use for people and to, to really take that mass market and push more people and get them more 
excited about that big bait side of things. Do you not? So since you're traveling everywhere, do you see the trend like uh, for big baits kind of coming up more on the East coast a little more and the, and the, you know, Midwest and stuff, you see a little more people. Yeah. Throwing, yeah. Hands down. You see it, especially more in that. Yeah. In that size range, right? Seven and a half to nine inch stuff. You don't see as much of a 12, 13, 14 inch stuff as much mm-hmm. that way. Um, and so I, it's definitely growing though. Because I get more and more messages of people from all over sending pictures of fish that they caught on a glide, right? Whether it's all the way in the northeast up in Maine and Connecticut and stuff. Yeah. Or it's down in Arizona on Saguaro or California or, you know, it could be Clear Lake. I get them from all over the place, even Florida and stuff. And so it it continues to grow bigger and bigger. I know from fishing it, big baits all over the country that they'll eat them all over the place. Uh, you know, there's obviously some lakes that are better than others based on the forage and mm-hmm. how the body of water sets up. Uh, but there's always a time and place on nearly every body of water to be able to throw a big bait. So now what's, can you talk about a tournament where, that bait was a game changer for you and pulled you in some big fish. Yeah. Well, actually, I, it was funny. I won so when I won on Champlain this year, mm-hmm. like I was super pumped about it. And at the same time, I was kind of pissed about it because I like, nobody's really won a major, major pro level event on Champlain with all smallmouth. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wanted to be the first guy to do it. And so I was catching a smallmouth all week and I was keeping myself in contention. And on day three, I'm, I was on my way running back to the ramp and I stop on one place and I pick up the Arashi Glide and I throw it out there and I catch, it was like a four and a quarter largemouth. <laughs> <laughs> and I put it on the balance beam. And I balance beam it against all the smallmouth. And my smallest smallmouth and that large mouth were like, they were neck and neck pretty much. <laughs> and I was like, well, you get bonus points for eating the glide. So I pulled the large and I took the large mouth away. <laughs> uh, and then like the next cast, I had a six pounder follow it. And, uh, you know, there's been several tournaments like that. Uh, even Table Rock. A few years ago, I made a top 10 there and every day I would, I would go and I would catch a bunch of fish on a jerk bait and then I'd catch, you know, 13, 14 pounds and I would come back down and I'd throw a glide bait trying to catch one or two fish. Uh, and it, and every day I would get that one big bite on a glide bait. Yeah. Uh, and so I've, I've had several tournaments over my career where it definitely made a difference i'm yet to have one where i can just lock it in my hand and and just go uh you know that's still like one of my goals is to have a tournament set up where we're at the right place at the right time when you can just you know lock an eight inch hood or the rashi glide or something 
in your hand and and just go to work. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Did you hesitate when you first were trying to pick up a big bait during a tournament? Just because it was like, man, you got to put a little work in. I don't know if it's going to work at this time. Or did you kind of know the conditions were right and you're like, I can do it? Well, I, I've i never hesitated in the time that I've fished on the Elite Series. Okay. Um, I hesitated, well, I hesitated some in, in the Bass Pro Tour. Uh, I still threw it some, but it just doesn't work as well in that format. No. Uh, but I've, I've grown up throwing swim baits in tournaments since I, almost since I started, I think the last 18 plus years. And so I always gained the confidence in it, right? Because early on, there were several tournaments where I would lock it in my hand at home and I would catch 25 pounds and second would be 14. (laughs) And so I gained a lot of confidence in those scenarios, throwing it in situations where it wasn't, you know, your like quote unquote perfect swim bait condition. Yeah. Do you, do you see other guys uh, throughout the years in series throwing swim baits more rarely? Yeah. There's, there's some guys that mess around with it. Um, It's still, it's still a really tough thing to commit to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think because I grew up doing it for so long, it's easier for me to lock one in my hand or just say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to throw this. Uh, and my mindset on it a lot of times is that if I know that there's a group of fish somewhere positioned, I typically pick the big bait up first because I feel like I'm going to catch the biggest one. Yeah, out of that group, and and I I just I give myself a better opportunity of doing that, and I and then you see that starting to catch on more and more, and there's definitely parts of the country where it's catching on more and more, for sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's get to some of these questions. We got a decent amount. Yeah. Um, this one is from the real Tony Lamb. What is your prep tournament mental preparation? Or I'm sorry, pre-tournament prep. Uh, gosh, I fucked that one up. <laughs> what is your <laughs> What is your pre-tournament mental preparation? Do you have a plan? Uh, and see if conditions match up or down. Uh, you wing it and see what conditions are and build off of that. 
So what's your, yeah, I guess your so the, you always try to come in with a game plan, but it is a game plan that is written in pencil and not pen because you have to sometimes be able to erase everything. And that's why I tell people that spending the most amount of time on the water that you can in as many different scenarios as possible will only make you better because we're all given the same amount of time on the water in a tournament. And the guy whose light bulb goes off the quickest and realizes that that's the change she needs to make or she needs to make is the one that's going to come out on top. And sometimes that can be daily, you know, or even happen throughout the day. You may have a really good morning bite, but then you have to adjust throughout the day to, you know, continue to catch up. And so, you know, for me mentally, I try to do as much online research as I can so that I feel as confident as possible going into it, right? Like I have a basic understanding of the body of water and what should be happening. And then I go, I launch my boat with an open mind knowing that I have preconceived notions that are like putty and I can mold that plan into whatever it needs to be based on the water. Do you take notes as well when you're out on the water, like say for a tournament and you're there? I don't. I take mental notes. Mental notes. And I should. I should take notes. I'm, honestly, I'm not disciplined enough to sit down and like write notes. I take mental notes, and but to like actually sit down and write them, uh, I don't. Great. Um, this one's from a great name. This is uh, Shit Show Joe. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it says it looks like KVD has struggled with the MLF, MLF format as well as others. Do you see some of the other top anglers opting to come back to the Elite Series? I think there's potential. I mean, you already saw it this year. Uh, you know, guys like Greg Hackney, Jason Christie, Justin Atkins. Well, this will be Atkins' first year on the Elite, but uh, he came from FLW Tour. Mm-hmm and then went to Bass Pro Tour, and now he's coming to the Elite. But there's there's certain guys that, um, you know, do better at one format than the other, and then there's some guys that do really well at both. Uh, and I, I think it's just a personal thing. You know, I mean, I've talked to some guys that they, they actually enjoy it more. You know, and then there's other guys that just mentally it doesn't jive with them the same. And so it's hard to say. Uh, I think it just kind of depends on where the momentum goes, you know, and kind of who has that momentum of whether or not they'll sustain or not sustain. Yeah. Okay. Great answer. Um, this one's from Burrell Bryan. Does Lake Quarter Lane have the potential for a double-digit largemouth? Just curious by an Idaho guy. Yeah, uh, 100%. It has the potential. Awesome. Um, I mean, we've got trout, we've got coconut, so we've got the right you know, food base. Our biggest struggle is that we are 100% northern strain, and so for you to grow a double-digit northern strain, it's 
going to be at least a minimum of 16 years old, I would say. And so that's, you know, because we've got a short growing season, they don't grow as fast, but they live longer. And so you just have to, you have to have those right genetics. There's been way too many nine to nine point eight largemouth caught in the last few years up yeah. here that there's a ten pounder swimming around. Like if you've got that many nine to you know, just under ten pounders, there's a ten pounder swimming around out there. Nice. Um some of these we answered on the podcast already, so I'm not gonna ask them again. Um, big bass dreaming 90, where's the top three lakes in Idaho and how long are you able to fish them from what month to what month? Oh man, I would say Coeur d'Alene is probably one of them. Ponderay is another one of them. And both of those lakes you can pretty much fish year round. Uh, the backs of the bays will freeze up a little bit but the main lake will stay 37 to 39 and you can still catch them. Nice. It gets that cold. Uh, boat ramps can be a little tricky <laughs> sometimes <laughs> with snow and ice and things like that. Uh, and the third lake is, and, um, all the Idaho guys will probably hate me, but door shack <laughs> is, <laughs> I've, I've dolphin like, I've dolphin uh, noised a couple of uh, a couple comments on here before if you need me to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's there there's a world record smallmouth swimming around in that place. Wow. It's, wow. It's super tough to fish, but it's a very unique body of water. Great, great answer. Um here's one from uh Rich Gostek, I think his name. Uh, have you uh, have you ever had an encounter with locals during a tournament, and how did it go down? Um, I've had a few, I would say, like over the years. Some stuff that, like when you look at it unfold, you almost feel sorry for the person in <laughs> like. And on top Just of that, the they, don't, that they don't acting. know you. They don't know you, so they don't know that you wrestle. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah, saying? Like, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I would say very rarely do I run into a situation where a guy is just purposely, like, causing issues. Um, generally, the situations I run into with locals on the water and stuff, most of the time they don't know. And so I always approach it that way, right? Like when I come into a situation, I want to fish a spot or I want to fish something and I see somebody there. My first instinct isn't like, I own this place and you need to leave. You know, I come in with the approach of like, Hey, you know, we've got a big tournament. Do you mind if I fish in here? I've been fishing here the last couple of days. Nine times out of 10 people are super cool. And they, you know, they'll pick up, they'll watch. But then there's always that occasional person that is like, screw you. I was here. I've been fishing here for 40 years. And I don't care if you got $100,000 on the line or not. I'm catching dinner. And you're like, you just, it's one of those things where that's part of what we deal with. And 
I just embrace it. Right? That's a good positive thing always, too, because yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's yeah. not always the most ideal. Right? Like, <laughs> I've had situations where I've had that, and I've I had to just take a step back and and tell myself like, this is not the only place to catch a bass right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that allows you if you know that going into an event, then it allows you to also build that plan B and plan C if those things happen. Which uh, could, could ha- that could really throw you off during a tournament, right? I mean, if someone was like, you're not pushing. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> I've watched, I've watched guys where that literally just eliminates them out of the event. Oh, that's horrible. Because mentally uh, it just totally jacks them up. Now, I've also seen times where, unfortunately, that has probably cost some guys, you know, whether it was a win or a check or something like that. But that's, you kind of have to embrace it and say that's why we love this sport, right? It's like we don't play on a controlled environment. We don't have a perfectly mowed grass and all these things. But, no. Not you at just all. have to embrace it. All right, that's a great answer. Um, this guy, I think, seems like he might know you. This is a great question too, because this is, comes back to the shit in your pants story that I asked you if you ever did that. <laughs> it says, "See, I think it's Sea Ghost. Ask him if he ever came home missing a sock and what he ate before he lost his sock." <laughs> See, I, okay, so I saw that one on the post, and I was so confused by it. You've never had to wipe uh, your ass with a sock, dude. I have. No, I mean, you're a hunter. You hunt, right? Not, I mean, you're out there in the woods, man, right? Yeah, but I love, I love a good pair of socks. I go like a t-shirt <laughs> sleeve before a pair of socks. Oh shit! I think Nick, I would even ditch my underwear before I ditch one of my socks. But. I think you're right. That's a that's a great answer. I'd I'd ditch the underwear first. <laughs> <laughs> um. Let's see. This one is, um, this is C J L fishing. What do you do in the off season to prepare yourself for the next season? Do you do a lot of studying or do you just go out and fish and learn about the transitions, uh, and where they are at certain types of year? Thanks, Brandon. So I do, I do a fair amount of research, uh, it, you know, especially if it's a place that I haven't been. Uh, it, it's a body of water that I've been to a fair amount of times at a time of year that we've been there. Then I at least generally have an idea of what stage those fish should be in. And then I pay attention to what the weather is doing in those places. Uh, because a lot of times we fish in places during a transitional time of year or well, really every single day of faster in transition either going to or from the spawn and they just make that circle mm-hmm. and and so i i always try to have that game plan like we talked about before do that online research um you know the off season is the time that we renegotiate contracts come up with you know marketing game plans with the companies we work with uh you know currently like most of the day today I was doing emails and then I jumped in and I was working on rigging my boat to some more of the stuff that 
showed up for my new skeeter showed up. Nice. And so it's, it's kind of just like an ongoing process of prepping for the next year, right? Getting our RV packed and then trying to see family that you haven't seen in five or six months and see your friends <laughs> at home and um, try to get some of that done as well. Do you, here's a question for you from me. Do you have a manager that deals with all of your uh, sponsors and stuff? I do not. So, um, I only ask because I, I, I'm, I'm horrible at it myself. I don't yeah. like dealing with it. So I'd rather not deal with it if I don't have to, because I'm a pushover. So, uh-huh. I mean, you know, so I'm wondering, do you have someone, cause you seem like you're the same kind of like, whatever, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I actually, I do everything on my own. Uh-huh. Um, Tiff, Tiff helps out a lot on the like day to day type of stuff. Um, but when it comes to like sponsorship uh-huh. and things like that, um, she'll organize all the contracts in a nice folder and <laughs> make sure I'm on top of everything. But when it comes to negotiating That's or all working with new sponsors, I do that all. I, I prefer to build that friendship and that relationship with the people that I work with uh, and make it enjoyable uh, because that, I don't, at the end of the day, when times get tough and they are looking at it and if they have to cut, start making cuts and cutting people, I like, I want them to have to call me personally, not change their mind too, right? I mean, that could change your mind and go, you know what? We talked to him. Let's give him a call. Maybe they go, you know, we like this guy's actually has a you know, a relationship with us. You feel like that's something that's untouched as well. Like the fishing industry, like another thing about part of being a pro is learning how to deal with sponsors. And like, I'm sure you get dudes that, that jump from company to company every other year, which might not be a good, you know, look sometimes, but who knows? I don't know. That's like something that, that needs to be learned as well. Right. Yeah. I would say it when it comes to sponsorships and the business side, the fishing world is definitely different than I can't say any other sport because I haven't dealt with it in all the other sports but in most of your major mainstream sports it's just it's different because their agents and stuff are like negotiating team contracts and things like that of like who essentially is going to own you Yeah, and then they also do their endorsement contracts. So those endorsement deals are usually like, you know, here's a bunch of money to film a commercial, and you're going to be a spokesperson for it, and that's it, right? Like they're they're kind of a lot of times they're one off deals and things like that. Mm-hmm. And but in the fishing world, it's such a much so much more of a smaller group of people who make the decision within those companies right they're not as there's some big corporations in the fishing world but they're not the size of like the nike and and, like you know these massive global companies and and so that that process of like building that relationship to me is a a lot more important Uh, because just like i don't like to be considered a, just a number on a P&L at the end of the year. 
<laughs> like I also want want them to feel the same way, right? Like that I'm not just a number. Yeah. And that I'm not just like a marketing expense on their budget, right? Like I want them to look at it and be like, this is well worth what we're paying him. We're not paying him just to sell, but actually getting, he believes in the product. He uses it. We enjoy being around him. Like <laughs> that, all of that stuff comes into play. Did someone show you that? Like your dad or like a, a someone you looked up to at the fishing industry kind of show you the, the ropes a little bit? Uh, not, not really. Um, I think a lot of it was just stuff that I had learned over the years of just getting in situations where like, oh, I don't really like the way that went down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to just being a good person. <laughs> I think a lot of people forget that. Uh, like one of my things is I'm always people over profit. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean by people over profit? Like choose people first versus like making yes. more money. Okay. Um, you know, and that's one of my, I, I'm just, I'm the type of person that I'm not willing to like cut corners and, and do things less just to try to make a little bit more money. Kind of goes like earlier when I was talking about, like, you know, don't sell yourself, yeah. sell your soul or anything like yeah. that. Uh, it's kind of that that same principle uh, in a lot of the way that I make my decisions on the companies that I'm going to work with are based off of that simple principle. Like, I want them to also have a lot of that same philosophy. Um and that's where you run into the difference between like a lot. I would say the fishing industry as a whole is much more that way than um, like a major corporation. Yeah. Right? Where they're making decisions, pinching pennies, doing these different things. And it, it, to me, like it, if it takes away from the consumer to save you a little bit of money, it's not worth it in the long run. It's worth it in the short, in the short game, but in the long game, you lose every time. And also, like it's got to be hard sometimes if you if you're using something you don't believe in. You know it's, what I'm saying? Like for if me, I'm, for me, it's literally impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it just, just doesn't happen. Like, like I've I've had no. a couple people. Like I barely am starting to get sponsored with the podcast. And and before I kind of had some a couple companies go, hey, we want to work with you, and I'm kind of like. That's not me, though. People are going to know that's not me when I say this. You know, mm-hmm. like it's so it's a hard one for sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, and it's a <laughs> it's a balancing thing, right? Because um, there's the other side of the coin of like when a guy's starting out and you literally don't have any money, and someone's like, "Hey, we'll give you five thousand dollars." And you've got a hundred dollars in your bank account. You're like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and you know, I don't like, I don't look down on anybody or anything for making those decisions. Uh, because 
at the end of the day, you also still have to make money, Riley. I I also have a very love-hate relationship with money because I love the things that it allows me to be able to do. I have no attachment to money itself. Mm-hmm. I, I love the things that it allows me to do, right? Like to be able to fish for a living, to pay entry fees. And uh, I think there's too many people that get worried about just the money side of it. Yeah. And, and, but you, at the end of the day, like you also are a business, right? Like a professional angler is your own small business and you need to run it that way. And, and you want, you need to be profitable to sustain just like those companies do. And I think if, if guys take that approach and things are out there on the table and you're working together, then it, there's really not any issues then, right? And it, the place where you run into issues is where, like, there's not a good line of communication of what somebody's paying, like the deliverable, I guess, on both yeah, ends. Yes, yes. Because I'm sure you could, it could come up short with the angler as well. I mean, when they expect yeah. someone to, to promote something, you know, uh, and it just doesn't come through and they never put up anything, especially social media plays into it now. You got to post a certain amount for that company even. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, do you tie your YouTube say, Do you tie your YouTube into it as well? Like when you when you go for a sponsorship or is the YouTube its own deal? I've tried to keep it separate. It's a good idea. The, and, and really, I mean, the thing is, is from a monetary standpoint, I keep it separate. Uh, but at the same time, it undoubtedly adds value. Mm-hmm. It can't not add value because it's more eyeballs on products, logos, all of that. Uh, right? A lot of times it's eyeballs that they wouldn't get otherwise. And so even if somebody's not paying for that, they, they're essentially just getting it as a bonus. right? Because some yeah. of my contracts are the same as they were before I started the YouTube but they're getting, you know, over the course of a year, they're getting whatever. I don't even know what the numbers are. And I just looked at it the other day and I can't remember. They're getting like millions and millions, right? Like upwards of 10 million plus more impressions. Mm-hmm. But they're paying the same amount of money. And that's just because you're already yep. sponsored and you're in the video at a tournament. You got everything on already. So it really doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's essentially just a bonus. Um, and I've, I've sold sponsorship deals for that before. I had Go RVing um, sponsored it a couple years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been talking to a couple companies lately about potentially sponsoring it again. And so I, I try to keep it separate, but it's, we're filming the tournament. And so it's kind of all. Yeah, tied together and then sense. and then it's a sponsor you know and then i use a lot of the content from that for to promote those sponsors so because it's my life it's all just tied into one anyways but mm-hmm. um but i do negotiate separate deals based on that that's nice perfect answer 
for me. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> what is your favorite uh, bait for extremely stained water in the dead of summer? That's Japanese bass man. For me, it would probably be like a storm Arashi square three or square five. Nice. Uh, I mean, summertime, dirty water. If you can find a little bit of current, or even if you can find shade lines and things like that, you'll have some shallow fish. Mm-hmm. And you, a lot of times you can get those fish to react by cranking them. You know, so if you got lay downs or rip wrap, sometimes, you know, it could be natural rock and things like that. Uh, that's usually going to be my go-to nice. for dirtier water. Um, this one from Big Bass Ron V. What's better, bass fishing or elk hunting? They are beautiful in their own ways. Uh, You know, bass fishing is definitely my number one passion. Uh, But hunting for me is, it's like, it's more of the experience and kind of a soul reset for me every year. Um, you know, I, I love getting out in the back country where my cell phone doesn't work and electronics don't work and you're just out there. And for me, it's a, just on a personal mental level, it's a good reset yeah, for me. Makes sense. You got to do something different. The adventure side of it uh, yeah. for me is what I love. Great. Um, this one's from Stray Rat Swim Baits. Uh, what is your go-to big bait non-inject, non-injected plastic? Oh, man. Um, I'm, I'm like the last couple of years, I haven't thrown much other than the Arashi Glide. <laughs> but I would, I mean, like a depth 250 is phenomenal. Really? Um, that's a it's a great bait. Um, I love throwing like a Hinkle Shad. Yeah. And then there were, I mean, I've caught fish on that all all over the country. Um, you know, those are probably a couple of my favorite ones. Perfect. Um, that are not injected yet. Yeah, perfect answer. Um, this one is from OU812. Uh, favorite pro to be staying camping with while on the trail? Who's the best pro to drink a beer with? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I love me some Chad Pipkin. <laughs> Chad, he is, so he roomed with us in our camper for several, several years. Um, actually all the way up till I went to the Bass Pro Tour. That was one of the hardest parts is like he was staying and I was leaving. <laughs> and <laughs> um, he's probably one of, if not the most positive person that I've ever been around. <laughs> and honestly, when I won AOI in 2017, like he was a big part of that because he... I would finish in like 20th and be 
pissed off about some fish I lost and he would finish in 60th and have a better attitude than I did. And so I constantly learned from him and he's just, he's always, he's always positive. He's always happy. Um, and he's a great angler and just one of those people that's easy to be around. Uh, I, I love hanging out with that guy. Nice. Um, this one's a good question. What is your 2020 electronic setup? Do you think there will be restrictions put on electronics in the future by professional leagues? Jordan uh, Bradley. So, uh, on my new FXR, I'm going to run two Hummingbird Solix 12 at the console. And I'll run, usually my left one, I run on either full map or map in 2D. Mm-hmm. And then the right graph, I run split screen between side imaging and down imaging. And then up front, I'm running three Hummingbird Solix 12. Damn. And I'm going to have one for Mega 360 and then one for Mega Live. And then another one for my mapping and my 2D sonar. Damn, you got it all. So it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be a lot. Um, but for me, there's there's times and places for all of those things and their mm. tools. And I don't I don't know that the leagues would ever limit electronics. Um, but I, I say that just based off of what we currently have Yes. now is all of a sudden somehow down the future, we come out with technology, you put a pair of sunglasses on and the water disappears <laughs> and you're just looking around and there's bats swimming around and you can see them everywhere. I mean, yeah, they probably would have limit, you know, limit that to an extent, but in the current state that we are now, there's still too many variables in a tournament situation over a four day event that even if you have the best electronics, if you don't understand how to use them or understand the basic knowledge of fish movements and seasonal patterns, at the end of the day, you're still not going to win. It just allows us to do those things better than than we did without that technology. It's just another tool pretty much. Correct. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, great answer. Uh, here's, here's the best way to put it before a long time ago, not that long ago, we used to handwrite letters, hand them to a dude. He hopped on a horse, rode his horse across <laughs> the country, stuck that on someone else's doorstep and then rode back. And now we type on our computer and push a button and it sends it anywhere in the world. That's the truth. It's the truth. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like, you're still doing the same job. It makes it a little bit easier. Now, granted, that's probably not the best analogy, but that's kind of a thing. Like you're still doing the same thing. Technology just helps you do it a little easier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is from Purdy Mouth Co., uh, with a Arashi glide being such a successful bait, 
And Brand's passion for Big Swim Baits. Could we ever see a bigger version of the glide? Or does he have any more ideas for Swim Baits to Storm? Uh, so we have a, a, a three-piece bait that we call the Swimmer. Okay. We have the glide and the Swimmer. Um, and that was, again, just kind of based off of things that I liked in other baits, but tried to fix places where I felt like they failed. Right, I wanted a three-piece bait that I could burn as fast as I could physically turn my hands and not blow out. Yeah. And and that was my number one thing with that, and that's what we created. I also wanted one that had some head movement that wasn't just a still, you know, front section and then just the tail kicking behind it. I wanted head movement in it as well, and so it we tried to build that a little bit different. And I would love to build a a nine nine and a half inch version of the Arashi glide. Uh, I would love to build a bigger Arashi top walker, like our big walking bait. We've got a size 13. I would love to build like a 18 or a 19 or something. Um, but it's the tricky part is right. Like we were talking about bigger companies, mass producing baits versus a guy building them in his garage. Yes. The tricky part is, is that, for them to produce a bait and put the money and the marketing and stuff behind it and the logistics of shipping and all of that, uh, and just the time of mold cost and everything, it it takes a, their bottom line to break even is much, much higher than the guy building them in his garage. Yeah. And so they have to sell a lot more baits. And the bigger you go, the less baits you're going to sell. Yeah, just, yeah. It's the nature of the beast. There's no way around that. Like the bigger you go, the less space you're going to sell because there's just not as many people doing it. That doesn't mean that they won't do it. If you would ask me eight years ago, I would have never thought that they would build a glide bait. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that since we've already got the baseline, there's a possibility. And I think the more successful that swim bait category of theirs is the better the odds of a bigger bait happening. Great so if somebody really wants a bigger bait, they need to just make sure that them and all their buddies and all their buddies, <laughs> buddies are buying. Right. <laughs> um, this is the last one. This one is pre-spawn bass in Florida. Big cold front comes through, and the notoriously tough bite happens. Do you fish painfully slow with the soft plastic, uh, or try to force a reaction bite with a hard bait like a drop or jerk bait? Cold front Florida bass have me stumped. That's from uh, my buddy from Tennessee. Mm, I uh, I just I, I put the skeeter on the trailer, pack up the RV, and I roll my hat. My ass out of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, that's really what I'd like to do sometimes. It, Florida fish are, they're the most finicky and Florida strain bass actually in Florida are even worse. Um, and it's just because they don't deal with it as often, right? It's something that is out of their norm. 
to get a major cold front. They just don't see that most of the year. They're used to sunshine, hot temperatures. And so it takes them out of their comfort zone. And I struggle with this. Even when I know what I need to do, I, I, I struggle with it. And Florida is one of those things where if you know there are bass in an area, you have to just downsize and slow down. You just have to do it. Um, I've tried to go against the grain a bunch of times and it just, it doesn't work most of the time. Uh, I've shot myself in the foot and you, it's one of those things where in Florida, there's going to be certain sections of a lake or a river that are, have a better population of fish and you need to put yourself in those areas and just lock down and slow down when those cold fronts come. Great answer. Great answer. Um, I want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. you. You've been a great phone interview, man. Uh, Do you want to plug any sponsors or anything like that? I mean, you're the big swinging dick over here. You don't need to. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody wants to listen, I'm not going to like just list off a bunch of sponsors or anything you want to promote, maybe your YouTube channel, something cool Um, like that. I I like that a lot. If people, yeah, if people want to know like where to find me or, I mean, the easiest thing to do is just go to my website. It's bmpfishing.com. Mm-hmm. Those are just my initials. I get asked that all the time. What does BMP stand for? It's just my initials. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but there you can find, like, we've got merch on there. You can find the YouTube videos, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that. Um, and that's the easiest place to just, you know, find the sponsors i'm working with and then the youtube channel is also just bmp fishing so uh, yeah that's where if you actually want to learn what i do and everything if someone hasn't watched that's the best place to go do it great man i appreciate you coming on again thank you brendan yeah thank you hopefully we can do a in-person one sometime yeah that'd be great if you ever come down this way man i'm like i'm always open okay awesome i appreciate it 